Squeaky dog. Squeaky dogs. Good girl. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Dude, so check this out. So, yeah, I get normal breakfast, get in here, get it set up, coffee brewing. Then my buddy Drew calls me. Okay? Drew! Drew, shout out, Team Auburn. Drew and Emily. Oh, you know who I drew. Auburn also sucks. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> That's coming from a big Georgia fan. It's it's a core wound. It's an objective yeah. fact. <laughs> anyway, um, so him and I have stayed in really good contact the past couple of years, and we do this thing called the quick check-in. And it's really revolutionized how I stay in contact with friends. Drew and I developed it in its origins. And the ground rules are is that unless you are with another person or like in a meeting, et cetera, you always answer the phone when the other person calls. Mm. But there's no obligation for like a long conversation. So we've had multiple catch-ups for literally like two minutes of like, hey, how are you? good hey i gotta go i'm going into this thing or i gotta get this work done and it has been super cool because typically what happens with like my a lot not all but like a lot of my college friends or whatever is we'll go the the route where it's like every six months or every year it's like this huge thing to finally connect and then we'll talk for like an hour and a half to catch up and it's just so ineffective because what happens is like these good buddies of mine, these good friends of mine will call and I'll, I'll have something in like 10 minutes. And so I know this is going to be like an hour conversation. And so I, I don't then like pick up the phone. I'll say, oh, I'll, call, I'll call him back. And I think that's like reciprocal. And so it's like a major game of phone tag, blah, blah, blah. So like these ground rules that Drew and I have set for the quick check-in have been super cool. And so it's like easy to stay stay in touch. So this morning I knew I had like five minutes. Answer the phone. Hey, how's it going? Like what's been, you know, coming up, et cetera. Blah, blah, blah. You know, how's Emily? How's uh, team life? How's your son, John Mark? Good. That was it. Like you got any prayer requests? Okay. And it was great. So... I highly advocate for the quick check-in. End of story. That is rev- how am I just now hearing about this? This is revolutionary, dude. It's big. That is a it's... great idea. No, it because you're so right about the. I'm much less likely to answer a random phone call from a very close friend. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Whereas if it's a number I don't recognize, even if I only have five minutes, I'll probably pick up the phone just to see who it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. Yep. And so it's very that's a very interesting just human thing that I think a lot of us do. But it's even been very fruitful, like, yeah, if there's ever times that I specifically need prayers but don't have a lot of time or something like that, it, there's like a lot of confidence in calling Drew because honestly, probably ninety percent of the time he's gonna pick up the phone. Even if he's going into a meeting and it can just be like, Okay, no problem. Like, pray for this, and we'll catch up. And then, like, we're able to have longer catch-ups if we're driving or Mm -hmm. whatever. But 
I feel like I have a pretty busy like schedule as a seminarian and he's a focused missionary with a young family. So no one has a busier schedule than him and him and I, the past few years have stayed in probably better contact than any of um, like my friends over the, the course, at least consistent consistently. So was it his idea or yours? Who, who invented this? Or did you oh, get it well, somewhere else? This is this me on the podcast. It was totally my idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, idea. I was, I came up with the whole thing. Um, <laughs> it was 100% my idea. <laughs> so just so we're clear. Well, you know, it uh, reminds me of uh, Kyle Mano's trying to coin the phrase aftertizer or the word as the oh. food you eat after you're done eating because you're still a little bit hungry. Like you make mm. a PB&J. Yeah. after dinner uh, rather than just have a dessert but yeah. i really think the quick check-in uh, the appetizer to my mind uh, i haven't heard it anywhere else but the seminary but the right. quick well, check-in i think this could this could be big with the aftertizer, yeah. kyle would actually get more food even if he wasn't hungry just so he could promote the idea of the <laughs> so yeah. everybody everybody okay, knew the word doing, kyle? oh just eating after my meal yeah my aftertizer. yeah it's an aftertizer. yeah so. You've probably heard of it. Yeah. Did you? I called it an aftertizer. Did you hear that? I don't know if you caught that. Yes. And to his credit, Drew has uh, thrown out the question of why we haven't talked about the quick check in on the podcast. And I was like, dude, you know, Holy Spirit's got to got to lead into it. We don't want to be life coaches on here. We just don't want to throw out, you know, (laughs) a bunch of junk to do. But that was that was total revolutionize your life by living every day with passion and purpose. There yeah, we this go. is Three Dogs North. Thanks for <laughs> yeah. listening. No, look, we save that stuff when we get paid. All right, that's what the life coach things are for when I'm coaching people slash spiritual direction, and then they pay me. Okay, so you do get paid for spiritual direction, though, right, Connor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Good. Yeah, oh, yeah. oh no, no, no! I went through eleven years of higher education so that I wouldn't get a hundred dollars an hour for my time. <laughs> exactly baby relax so over christmas break on the drive home no the drive up here i listened to a book on tape called for the power and the glory by graham green which you actually suggested to me father Mm -hmm. and it was really really good um but what it did it did like a little ninja jujitsu kind of thing on my brain um because the book, um, I'm not exactly sure what the time period is, but it's set in um, kind of like Wild West Mexico. Um, and it's a priest who is like an undercover priest. And he's kind of a scoundrel at times. But then there are other times in the book where he is this incredibly wise and like really virtuous figure. Um, and the author gives great, beautiful insights into his heart and into his soul and to like what he really desires. And he has a child though. He like slept with one of the village ladies. And so he's very aware uh, within himself that he's living in mortal sin and, but he still celebrates the mass. And so it's like this strange combination of good and bad going on within this book and within this priest. Um, And I'm not, I don't want to give away the, the uh, entirety of the book, but well, the reason he's undercover is because it was during the uh, persecution in Mexico in like the, yeah. <clears throat> the 20s and 30s, I think, or maybe even earlier. Yeah, no, I think that's right. We'll mm-hmm. just say early 1900s, somewhere mm-hmm. around. 
Um, yeah, when the when the big persecutions were going on. So yeah, that's part of why he's undercover, and um, well, that is why, so that he doesn't get killed. And I guess a lot of the other priests are being killed. And yeah, the deal so was there's of, another priest character in that book that uh, capitulated to the government. The government forced the priests if they wanted to uh, <clears throat> not be killed by firing squad they had to get married and and kind of renounce their faith and so there's a yeah. there's a foil character that lives in his town who the kids all make fun of that used to be a priest and now his wife is always kind of badgering him and stuff like that yeah he's really a sad character that character is the saddest it's really sad um yeah and his wife just kind of like dominates him throughout the entire book just yelling at him from the window and she's like this is really obnoxious figure but but it, it was interesting towards the end of the book and i'm hopefully i tell this without giving it away but um you get the sense at the end uh which they, they play with the idea throughout that oh this guy is going to be looked at as a martyr someday even though he's this in a lot of ways like not a great priest you would say as a child they call him a whiskey priest because he's always running off getting drunk and like just trying to drink constantly and mm -hmm. he's a he's a big time alcoholic and so by the end of the book um you you get the perspective of a little child and he be, just kind of falls in love with the priesthood is is how the book ends and it's really by the example of of this priest and um yeah he's he's in in a way called a martyr even though his his whole death is not even very like courageous or heroic looking. Um, and what happened was I listened to that book and then I got home and went and visited my, my home parish. And um, I came into morning mass and they have like a little chapel where they have the blessed sacrament exposed for most of the day. And I came in and I saw this just diversity of people. It's a really diverse parish that I'm going to be heading to. And I already have like my my romance glasses on of just looking at everything with this very like w kind of wondrous desiring to see the best in everything and like this is my parish I'm falling in love with this thing and and very excited to be there um, so I'm looking at everything through this lens of it being amazing and I see all these holy people there you know they're praying and there's a blessed sacrament and um, they just they look like saints. I'm like, dude, this is a room full of hardcore saints right here. And it was such a beautiful experience to be able to pray with them in this mass. And the reality struck me of like, yeah, throughout internship, I'm probably going to get to know a lot of these people. And I really do think that these are holy men and women who love God and are, are striving to give him everything. But when you like, when you. When... Hello. And another thing. So anyway, you were saying you're about to get to the rub. It was. I was about a, to get to the rub. Yeah, get to it. I was about to get to the rub. You're exactly right. Um, aye, there's the rub. Aye, there's the rub. Yeah. Um, so I'm in this. Yeah, I'm in the chapel with all these, um, you know, very kind of just God-loving people. They're in there worshiping the Blessed Sacrament. They go to this mass. It's a very reverent, beautiful mass, and um, I was kind of. Yeah, just very, very in love with the parish, very in love with the people that I was around. And you could tell they were just kind of like regular common folk that were going to mass before they started their day. And 
uh, yeah, the thought occurred to me that uh, I'm prob- probably going to get close to a lot of the people in this parish. And um, they are, I'm, I'm, I was very convinced I was sitting amongst saintly people, no question about it. And uh, the closer that I get to them, I'm going to become a part of a life that's probably messy. Like you look at anybody's life, there's, there's a lot of things that go into making a person that are very complicated and don't always seem so sweet and so beautiful and this very romantic idea. And it kind of struck me as the same, uh, similar at least uh, for the power and the glory of like, what, what is a saint? You know, this priest over here in this book, maybe, which I, I'm pretty sure it's a fictional character. I don't think that book is based off of. Yeah, it's uh, fiction, but it's yeah. based on historical events. Okay. Like surrounding okay. him. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like maybe this priest, yeah, real or not, I'm, I'm not sure how real it was, but um, maybe he's declared a martyr by the church and is declared a saint. And um, Well, isn't you know, it interesting that in that book, remember there's kind of a side story going on with the, that kid who hmm. uh, his mother reads him the stories of the Cristero martyrs and they're, you know, super Which the book ends with. Right. And all of the stories are, you know, ever since he was in seminary, he was levitating. He was so holy. And this is what led him to be so strong for Christ. And yeah. And uh, when he's in jail, uh, you know, the kid's interested in in this guy and he's kind of known to be a whiskey priest and have an illegitimate child. And she's like, no, he's not a hero. He's not a hero. Yeah. Um, And she says, I hope you don't for the sake of the church. I hope you don't get martyred. So that you're numbered amongst the saints, like you're not declared a martyr for the church. Yeah, because it didn't fit her. Yeah, idea. Said, There's no way. And throughout the entire book, he runs into people that he judges, and he thinks, which is, it's interesting to get his insight because he meets this like very pious lady who kind of judges everyone else around him, and he takes a stance of like, how who are you to judge? And then he finds himself in the same position as that lady of judging everyone else and immediately falls into his old ways and um and so i i got the sense being with these people at the parish that yeah they they are saintly people but the reality is is the closer i get to them and the more they allow me to get into their lives and even into like my own life you know um there's there's always it's always messy it's very very messy the the actual human reality of living as a christian um, and so it was actually really good for me to look at and to think, um, I guess to kind of always hold that in mind of, um, that original, that really first encounter that I had with these people, because as I get closer, it's very easy to focus on kind of like the, the details that are not so, uh, not so fluffy and not so beautiful that you want to share with everybody, but they're a part of that, of that person. And I guess it, it just really called into question for myself, um, like, yeah, what, I guess, how, how do you look at people and what makes them a saint? Um, and it, it just, the comparison came up with me for that Graham Greene book. Um, you know, and, and then another story kind of on the flip side with it, and then I'll, I'll let us kind of bust it open. But uh, there was a saint 
in Ireland who I guess had a really bad drinking problem. Yeah, it's Talbot, Matt Talbot. Okay, right? okay. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, I couldn't remember his name. And he seemed like a totally regular dude. Uh, and everyone knew he was a drunk for a little while. And then his mom told him to give it up. And he struggled with it back and forth for a little while. But he eventually quit drinking. And I guess lived like a normal, regular life. And then when he died, they found, when they were taking care of his body, they found like a hairnet underneath his shirt. Um, in like a hair shirt? A hair shirt. Not a, a hairnet. Hair shirt. <laughs> Not a hairnet. <laughs> he was wearing a hairnet. No, he had, he had a hair <laughs> shirt a underneath Dang. all of his clothes. And I guess had been doing like some pretty severe penance. And uh, they started to look into his life. And it turned out he was living this incredibly saintly life. Um, but on the outside, it, he just seemed like a regular dude who was working... I think he was like working in some industrial field in, in Ireland. Um, and you never would have known he was living this saintly life. Um, and so I, it was just looking at all these different examples, the exterior is not always an indicator of what's actually going on interiorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it just made me rethink, or I guess to look at really, um, like the saints, how they really do live their lives in the daily mess. When we talk about sainthood all the time is being actually messy um so that was just kind of a thought that occurred to me yeah i think of um good job mike yeah you can be a topic guy now and there we go <laughs> not too um, often though yeah i think i think bis you might even told me this story but because uh, i don't remember if i actually heard the homily myself but there was a homily here a number of years ago by father oaks that he he said that um if there's someone that you don't want with you in heaven, or if there's someone that you can like, that you uh, can't imagine heaven with, then you yourself are not ready for heaven. Yeah, like if I think he said, if heaven is only good enough, if certain people can't be there, then you're not ready. Then you you yourself are not ready for right. heaven. And so I've also heard that uh, you know Father Hennessy will say that being a saint means you are attached to Christ. It doesn't mean that um, you know, you're know you necessarily perfect in the sense that we think of like an American perfectionism or anything um, like that. So I've heard Father Hennessy critique, you know, he'll say kind of like the obvious one is that uh, St. Jerome was kind of a hothead or – I've even heard Father Hennessy critique um, the story of St. Francis, like when he stripped off all of his clothes in front of his father. And he said, you know, there was a certain like immaturity there in Francis that wasn't necessarily saintly, even though the intention was correct. And um, I was just reading, actually, in this Therese biography that I'm going through, and the author does a great job of just pointing out some of the stuff, um, just kind of like a false hagiography that has come up around Therese, especially, and just how normal, like the whole Martin family, who now have her parents, Saints Louis and Zelie, as well. And she just had this great point of oftentimes in um, in any ethos, like you have, um, you have an idealization of sainthood that actually all it does is just take certain saints and and takes like the most radical virtue of each and say that to become a saint you have to achieve all of this. So you have to be as smart as Aquinas and as poor as 
uh, Francis and as charming as Therese and like all this other stuff. She's like, that's not what makes an actual saint. And so, um, so for me, it's a great thing to pray through because like that attachment to Christ is the key, but obviously that's still vague. There's a lot to expand on there. And one quick thing on Tal- Matt Talbot, um, the the Irish guy, I think he's a venerable. I don't think he's a blessed okay. yet, but I heard um, the Father Gallagher talk on just the how powerful Ignatius's rules for discernment are. Because uh, I don't remember what rule it is, but it's it's talking about like when you're in a point of consolation, you shore up your defenses, and so you know where your weakest point is, and you try to like strengthen that point of yourself, you know, through God's grace, and so because you know that's where the evil one's going to attack, and he used that's where I've heard of Matt Talbot is he used that example of this guy who was just an alcoholic and. Um, you know, he said this is pretty much the only spiritual principle that Matt Talbot ever used was this one rule from St. Ignatius that said, you know, strengthen where you are weak. And he said it made him a saint, you know, and he was so weak that like that's all he could focus on was and literally he would go to work and he would go to the church um, and his ascetical practices like we wouldn't necessarily recommend today, but he kind of put all of his chips on the table where he knew his weakness was. And that centered his whole life on Christ, even though it was a very real cross. So I just love that line from Father Gallagher of, you know, he focused on this one rule of Ignatius and it made him a saint. Yeah. Because I think his whole practice was the only place I know where to be to get through this temptation is in the chapel. Yeah. And he had these just passionate urges to go and drink. And so he would just passionately stand to the chapel yeah. and straight. This is where I find consolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, that's a great point where it's, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to be every single saint, which is like, that's totally my thing. I'll read a saint mm-hmm. and be like, Oh my gosh, look at this guy's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be just like him. Totally. <laughs> and then like, I'm working to be attain all these virtues that, that, that saint has. Um, or you're even getting to the point where you like you're taking virtues from multiple, multiple people absolutely. at a level that like even the greatest saints were not able to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And like you're putting that burden on yourself then. Yeah. Which has you in the center of it already. It's right. not even the right starting place. But and then even a, another thing that I really you still enjoyed. with us, Bisque, by yeah, the way, I'm, I'm listening, okay. dude. Yeah, no, I just don't want I mean, make sure we didn't lose you again. <laughs> hey there, chump. Are you soaking all of yeah. this in? Because <laughs> you can hang up if you want to. Yeah, you guys are doing pretty good without me. Anyway, <laughs> continue, Mike. Sorry to interrupt. But uh, just the whole, like, even throughout that entire book, it was so tough for me. This is what I've realized. I and most of the Metzes, my family, <laughs> just to make a broad general statement here, we're purists. So we like to th- see things that are totally white and totally black. Like okay. gray, don't do well with gray. <laughs> Nashville Dominicans, love them because they're all good. And you're like, dude, they freaking rock through and through. <laughs> Very easy to look at and see that. Like JP2, solid all the way through. <laughs> Just can't, what, you can't not love that guy. Or like Nazis, hate them. <laughs> terrorists, hate terrorists, hate terrorists. Because they're all bad, just bad. It's so easy to make that distinction. 
But then <clears throat> when you start to get in that gray area, that is such a struggle for for me and for Metz's. Like we want the ideal. And if it's not the ideal and it's somewhere in between, that's really, really tough for us. If it's bad, we'll kick it right out. That's no good for us. We don't want it. It's very clear. It's very obvious. And so that book, it puts you in this strange middle ground where you have a scoundrel priest who also lives a life of virtue and is going around <clears throat> directing souls beautifully at times. And you can see the hand of God working through this man who is living like a dirty, dirty scoundrel. And in a lot of ways is like running from things and has his own huge problems. But God is working exactly in that. So the moments where he has, like he's even running away at points or he's being mean to people or stuff like that. God brings him into an encounter with a human being that needs a priest really, really badly. That only him being there, being a scoundrel, would have put him in place to be a father for these people. <clears throat> and so that's very tough for me to see um, the mix of essentially God's hand throughout all of that, all of that sin and all of the things that I would consider not ideal and not this very American perfectionist tendency. Um, and I mean, I don't know if I can point exactly to the saints and say that that's very present there, but that's a very, that's a, that's a reality in the life of most, most every Christian who's striving to love Christ is, uh, God is going to be working through our sinfulness and he's going to be working through less than ideal conditions. And that's oftentimes where he does his best work. Um, and oftentimes where he surprises us the most. Um, and so that was really, it pushed my framework of how I think a saint should live or how I think even God acts through the world. Like, man, when I'm good to go, when I'm virtuous ballers priest who can do all these amazing things, God is going to crush through me, of course. Um, <laughs> through me, his humble servant. My yeah. lowly servant. Of course, it's all God. But when I'm ready, then God will be able to use me and things like that. Like, no, God, and this is, we, we talk about this relatively often, but God works through all of those human defects, all of our sinfulness. Um, and I think that that book just portrayed that in a very real way that pushed my notions of God and how he divine action working in a sinful world. Um, yeah. You know, <clears throat> what I'm thinking of a couple of things. One is uh, an RCIA class I gave. Um, I told you, I just, I've been doing like true or false quizzes to start the class and we got like two hours. I do it in English one week, Spanish the next week, but these quizzes have been very helpful to just start the discussion about kind of basic theological principles. So I did one on Jesus, Christology, you know, true or false, Jesus is a man, true or false, Jesus is God, and work through all these things <clears throat> that are kind of high level, but just kind of make it, I don't know, where the rubber meets the road. So one of them was I, was, I was trying to do a class on how Jesus saves us. And the first two questions I had was, um, true or false, if you live a good life, it doesn't really matter what you believe, you'll go to heaven. And number two, if you live a bad life, no matter what you believe, you'll go to hell. And uh, it was interesting seeing people's answers to those questions, because generally speaking, people want to be generous and say, yeah, if you live a good life, it doesn't really matter what you believe, you'll probably go to heaven. 
But then when it, when you put it the other way, people are like, oh, yeah, well, I don't know. And the whole like spectrum between Jesus as the ultimate ideal human life and then sort of whatever person you want to put it, stand in as the most evil, you know, your Hitler's or Bin Laden's or something like that. You got the spectrum between like the most evil life and the best life. And we kind of commonly think of mercy as like lowering the bar. So more, you're just allowed more selfishness or whatever, and you can still probably get in. But then that lowering of the bar, say like you have to be halfway between Hitler and Jesus to get into heaven. Well, what about the people that are like 49%, you know, let's be merciful and, and lower it down even more. Uh, you know, but then you get to a point eventually where you're like, yeah, but Hitler definitely can't come, you know, hmm. or whoever, you know, if you lived a really, really bad life, you're not welcome. Um, so you have to do the cutoff point at some point, but you know, it doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't really make that, that whole system of like heaven is for good people. Hell is for bad people. Uh, kind of it, it's untenable, um, because at some point you're drawing the line and we're all deciding like I'm good enough, but they're not, you know, and that's, that doesn't fit with any of Jesus's preaching, um, or the way he treated people or, the cross, the, the good thief next to him on the cross, it says, <clears throat> he says, this day you'll be with me in paradise, even though uh, by all accounts, he seemed to have lived an evil life, you know, but all that meant what I was trying to convey was all that matters is what you believe. Um, and it's not a sola fide Lutheran thing where it's like, as long as you believe you can do whatever you want. It's that your belief in this person of Jesus directs everything else in your life. And even though and it's Hennessy's thing you were talking about, attachment to Christ. And the way I give a talk on confession on Sunday night um, up on the North Shore, and I always try to, whenever I talk about anything, I try to get the basics of, of salvation down. And the quickest way I've found to explain what I call the bad news and the good news, original sin and, and redemption in Christ, that original sin is trying to live as if God does not exist. You know, any, any sin is that like you temporarily would like God to be gone so that you can do something, you know, he forbids, you know? Um, so that's Adam and Eve in the garden and it's every single one of us. And the story, I, I don't know if, I think I've told this on the podcast of, uh, Scott's niece who, when she, she had, he had two nieces and the older one had a bad dream that her parents had died. And she wakes up in the middle of the night crying and runs into her parents' room. And her mom's consoling her, saying, no, it's just a bad dream. We're still here. We're not going anywhere. And then her little sister had woken up in the ruckus and was standing there and kind of <clears throat> trying to process it and contemplating what life would be like without parents. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she goes, we could have gum whenever we wanted. <laughs> I've never heard that You've story. never heard that story. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of became family lore but and it's cute because it's a kid and she's just thinking about how her parents don't let her have gum whenever she wants and <laughs> ice cream for breakfast um but it's it to me it's it paints a perfect picture of what childish humanity is and it's rebellion against god it, they don't understand what it really means to not have parents all they can see is the the rules you know and how it would be nice if the rules were gone, and so the only way to do that is to just um, excise the parents from my life and, and 
only later do you realize, and this is the misery of, of living in original sin, only later do you realize the, the, how terrible it is to live without parents or to be orphaned. Um, and so Christ comes down into that, and the cross is sort of the visible image of what that looks like when we would rather have gum than parents. When we tell, we tell God, we don't want you here. We, we hear that you love us and that it, that love is unconditional, but we still reject it. And the resurrection is the, the swallowing up of our rejection of him with his acceptance of us. And so all that matters is your attachment to this person, Jesus, who and in his person swallowed up sin and death and our rejection of him with his love and his life. And the story that I tell for that is... Um, one I heard, I heard this recently from another priest. He tells it in baptism prep, kind of a parable. So a guy's walking on a hill and in, in the light, a beautiful sunny day, and all of a sudden he trips over something he didn't see and falls into this big hole. And he's stuck down in this cave and he can't climb out of it. And he's bruised and broken and looks up and he can see like a pinhole of light at the top of the cave. And, uh, to his right and to his left, there are these dark caverns that are kind of terrifying, and he doesn't know where they lead. And he's just sitting there waiting, wondering what to do, and then his friend, he sees at the top of the cave, look down uh, to him. But instead of sending a rope down or giving him climbing gear to get out himself, uh, he jumps down into the hole with him, at which point he says, why did you do that? Uh, now we're both stuck down here. And the friend says to him, it's okay, I've been here before, and I know the way out. And so he leads him through the caverns, which had been terrifying until his friend was there, who knew the way out, um, out of this cave back into the light. And that's heaven, um, getting out of the darkness of, of sin, of living this orphaned existence, that whether or not you're... 100% culpable. I mean, we're all guilty in Adam, but the, the paradox is like, well, we didn't sin. Why, why are we at fault? But the whole world is in darkness. That's why the people who've sat in darkness have seen a great light, that it's Jesus, not any virtue on our part, not any discovery of our inner self, but him coming down from heaven into the muck of our lives and our, our sinfulness and our brokenness and the only thing that's important to that guy in the cave is, one, his trust in his friend that will lead him to get up and move and go with him. And the second thing is staying close to him. If he wanders off, to stop, turn around, and say sorry, and let his friend lead him back onto the right path. No, you know, No matter how much he's tried to go off through caverns on his own, thinking, oh, now I've got, you know, I pretty much got this now. I've been doing this for a while. I can go it on my own. No, you immediately get lost. And the only way back is to um, reconcile yourself to, to this friend who is your only hope of ever getting back out into the light. And so, like the whole, um, like, last-minute deathbed confession thing, you know, I've heard people say, you know, that seems unfair because they, they live their whole life the way they wanted to, and then at the last minute, they're going to, you know, pretend like they're holy and they, they get to go into heaven. And it's like, no, dude, you're, you're missing it because living your whole life as if God doesn't exist is not better. You're not getting cheated out because you follow Jesus your whole life. That's the older son of the prodigal son. Like, I did everything that you wanted and, and I never got a goat. And you hear this 
son who wasted all your inheritance gets this big party. This is unfair. And, and the father says, everything I have is yours. You live here. You're my son. Uh, what more could you possibly want? He doesn't know what it was like for the prodigal son who was in misery eating, jealous of the pigs for the muck that they got to eat that led him finally to, to the humility it took to go back. Um, but that's the, I mean, that's the story of uh, Graham Greene's book, but it's, it's the story of everybody. It's my story. It's yours. I mean, you, you're, you mentioned the Nashville Dominicans as the, the paragon of light, but I'm sure if you asked, if you really got down dirty with any one of those sisters about their life, their past, their history, their wounds, that they're just as messy as anybody else. Yeah, um, totally. That's, and, and that, that elaborates the point exactly of what I'm talking about. Um, is it is, is you can dive into any of any of their lives and the reality, that's such a beautiful story is that Jesus dumped, jumped into that hole, into that darkness. And they're just the ones who are letting him lead them around. That's really the difference. Um, yeah, no, that's a beautiful story, dude. I will use that. Yeah, that <laughs> you just summed up the spiritual life with that story, man. It was baller. It's not mine. Uh, Why is there something rather than nothing? It makes me think of, uh, I don't know if you've read it, Father, Tom Sawyer, Twain's, uh, his little kid novel. He's got a couple characters. He hit, I'm ashamed to it. say I've never read that. I need to. Dude, I think it's, it's either Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn. I'm pretty sure it's Tom Sawyer. But they got a bunch of treasure that's in these caves. And these kids just kind of go like flying. That's Tom it. Sawyer. Tom yeah. Sawyer. Yep. They're so good. Also, well... This isn't a book suggestion thing, but Twain's Joan of Arc. It's a must read, folks. <laughs> no one knows about it, but that's his favorite book ever, he's ever written. Huh. Um, he's really good. But it's just, <clears throat> yeah, it's actually a line that you use all the time, Rob, is like just letting the Lord lead you into places where you yourself would not go mm. and letting him go down into the depths. Um, yeah, and I guess just a really big thing for me has been just the idea that Christ is not, he is exterior to us. He's closer to us than we are to ourselves, but he's also greater. You know, his thoughts are greater than our thoughts are, and it's just so far above us. So he's both interior to us and the most exterior to us ever. And so he is in a sense leading us, but he's also pushed within us, moving us forward. And one of the big things from IPF that Deacon Keating actually hits on all the time is letting the Paschal mystery into your heart from inside out, which is letting the kingdom of God come in through you and then allowing that to, to be the reality in which you live and invite other people to live in is the kingdom of God present within you and bring them into, into that life, seeing, seeing life through that light. And so just looking at that cave analogy with the Paschal mystery being lived interiorly through that person who's lost in the tunnel. Um, because a lot of times, yeah, I have the idea of like, oh, Jesus, I don't know where you are. Let me come and find you. And then you have that guy who's running around the tunnel on his <laughs> own trying to find where Jesus is. And the trick is, the, the reality is he's already there interiorly to you. He's also exteriorly leading you. We have him in the in the Eucharist, obviously, 
And then even in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, like he, that was that exterior sign that God was with them. Um, but he is already present. We have a trinity of persons who created the universe dwelling inside of us. And, and so it's kind of blueprinted within our own hearts. And so just, I guess, letting the Lord break through that, which sometimes will lead you into that darkness, um, and even work through the darkness. That's, that's a really, that's a really tough thing for me is, uh, yeah, life isn't perfect and letting the Lord live and work and breathe and act through those imperfections. Um, it's less than ideal, which is not my favorite thing, <laughs> but that's the reality of it. But um, it's the only way out. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. we, we think maybe there's some straight tunnel. We can just go straight out uh, by our own efforts, but I mean, the moment, like you're saying, of him always being there, even when you, you feel like you're looking around for him, in the moment you let go of his hand, <clears throat> you're already lost. And the more you search around, the more you walk around trying to find him, you're just moving away. But he is there. He's he's the one following you. You're not, when you let go, he follows you. <laughs> you stop following him, he'll follow you. That's what I've found in my life is that yeah. he he will chase you and so any moment you're ready to stop doing that stop going off on your own turn around say oops sorry boom you're back on track and you might have to he might have to carry you like a ways because you've wandered carry you a ways to get you back on the right track but that's it our god is a person and it's not an impersonal force it's not Karma has no friends, dude. It's true as as it was when I said it first. <laughs> dude, like that stuff will not save you. Philosophy yeah. will not save you. Yeah. Uh, only the person of Jesus who came down into the messiness. Uh, if you don't want messiness, then you you're not a, you know you're not talking about Christianity, and you're not talking about eternal salvation. You're talking about life coaches or you know living every day with passion and purpose and uh, you know that stuff Being the it, best version of yourself that stuff is helpful well, but um but ultimately like this is why with rcia and the confirmation class like i remember getting pumped up about the idea of virtue and like oh man you just got to work on your virtues and then you know <laughs> oh yeah. yeah i'm getting up early and i'm working out and my life is kick ass and <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah dude that stuff is tempting but it's ultimately it it's not the way to heaven um yeah yeah and those things are they are they're very very good things living the virtuous life is a beautiful thing but it's not going to save you that's the essence of it it's yeah. not going to get you out of the tunnel and it will make you happier i think yeah. like they're they're important oh, for sure but yeah it's not going to get you out of that darkness god can save an unvirtuous person uh-huh Someone with zero virtue can be saved. <laughs> yep. Like, ugh. Yeah. That's, that's frustrating. Amazing, <laughs> but it's also repulsive in a way to me. <laughs> but it's beautiful. Yep. And yeah. It's... So, so let's just let's just go ahead and give our cell phone numbers and kind of maybe get a, a base rate for life coaching and <laughs> maybe get some calls. Dude, and that's a good idea. To start making some money. We, we that's could... been the point of this, right? Well, this whole ebook thing, that's the isn't that what we were gonna write about? Just like life hacks and stuff? Exactly. Hey, exactly. how much time do we have until? Because um, I have a story that I gotta it's get an going. absurd story from my from my childhood. 
that I think relates to this, but I don't know how much time we have. How much time you got, Bisc? Uh, I should get going, but how long do you think it'll take? Uh, maybe five minutes. Not okay. even. I'd say three. Do minutes. it. Go ahead. Be done by now. Okay. So when I was in, <laughs> when I was in seventh or eighth grade, maybe, <laughs> dude. This illustrates the point very well. I think I went on a canoeing trip, and uh, I was an idiot. And me and the other guy that I was with in a canoe just took forever to get down the river. It was probably like a three-hour canoe trip. And we were just joking around and taking our sweet time. And we were so far behind and had joked around so much that by the time we got to the um, the get out of the river point, not the drop-off point, but the exit point, uh, everyone had already left because they thought the whole group had already oh, come man. through and and so we just kept on going, boom, right <laughs> down the river. We just kept going, man. And so then it started getting dark, and we were like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> we're stuck on the Chattahoochee River. And I, even at one point, there was, like, the river, it kind of got a little bit, it, it got a little bit thinner. And we actually had to pick up the canoe over us and tread over rocks and then put it back down into the river. And we thought to ourselves, like, yeah, of course the other groups did this. No problems. Had no clue that we were like two or three miles down the river. Oh my gosh. So how old are you? Seventh, eighth grade? This is seventh seventh grade. Yeah. So it was I'm almost positive it was seventh grade. So then it occurs to us as it's getting dark, like, well, we're lost. <laughs> I'm lost on the Chattahoochee River. It's it's getting dark. So we need to at least get out of the water. So we get out, we put our canoe on the side, and the guy that I was with actually starts kind of like kind of freaking out. He's like, Oh my gosh, we're going to die out here in the woods. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, chill. We'll just walk back up the river. There was a bridge that we had passed underneath. Um, so we'll just, we'll walk up there. We'll get onto the bridge and we'll just call someone and we'll have them come and pick us up. No problem. So we kind of start walking back up, leave the canoe. And we, we hear some guy coming down the river on a kayak and he's whistling. He's whistling like this really loud tune. And so we come running out of the woods over to the river. And we're like, hey, hey, you come help us, save us. And the guy's like, oh, my gosh, it worked. So I, I guess what happened is everyone was looking for us lost in the woods on this river. And they had sent out like a message to people on the river. Um, my mom, she always used to whistle. And when we when she would whistle, that was like our sign to come home. And so she had this really loud, like booming whistle. So I don't think that guy understood that. He was just kind of whistling a tune. And so we come running out, and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is amazing. Uh, okay, well, we're going to take you down the river. And he puts the other guy in his in his uh, kayak. And me and the dude whose kayak it was just start floating down the river. And we ended up seeing, uh, like, a light on top of the hill and went up into the house. And they had, like, search parties that were out looking for us. Oh, man. Oh. And so then these rangers came over and picked us up. Like, the cops were there and brought us back to our group and uh, ended up being okay. We didn't, we didn't spend a night in the woods, but we were lost essentially the entire day. Um, but we were so convinced that, like, we were going to make it back on our own, essentially. <laughs> and so we, we, like, we got lost in the woods by one point. At one point, we were trying to make a cut through. And then we just said, well, we'll just stick to the road and come back from where we came. We'll stick to the river. Uh, and then this guy came down and we went all in with some random stranger dude <laughs> who was just a person. And we were freaking out. 
and wanted to be with a person who seemed like he knew what he was doing and could get us out of the river. <laughs> and so then the first opportunity we had, we went up to the, it was a light on top of a hill. Wow. I've never thought about this so like <laughs> spiritual light. There's a house on top of a hill and we climbed up and we were essentially saved and brought back to our parents. So they slaughter a fattened calf up in that house? They didn't slaughter a fattened calf. Dude, mm. Dude I'm glad you're okay too, Mike. Your mom was probably freaking out. Oh, she didn't freak out at all. Really? She had no, she had like eight kids, seven, nine kids. Yeah, she had once to spare, dude. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very true. It's very true. Apparently she was like the hero figure. Everyone was running around. So we, when we knocked on the door of the house, random house on the river, we opened the door and she goes, Oh, you're the people on the news. We're like, Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> like totally unaware that this was a thing, you know, like, Holy Hey, we're just kind of hanging out on the river. You were on the news. Hey, you're the kids on the news. You know what is kind of cool about that though? It's similar to that. Uh, sorry, this is Donna to expand it too much, but that whole thing, like the Father Mike Smith's Iron Man story of like people mm -hmm. rejoicing. Mm -hmm. But it is, there is something in that of like, yeah, here's these two idiot kids that did nothing but like screw around and like could have gotten themselves killed. Yeah. And here's all these people like going out of their time and way, um, like to come find you. And I'm sure, honestly, you know, especially had it been a little bit longer and there would have been like real, real fear for your guys' lives. Like all it would have been at that house is rejoicing yeah. and it wouldn't have been any like, hey, let's chew into these guys kind of like let's uh, like make fun of him because he's the last person across the finish line. It's like that's just saints coming after you, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we're, we were just doing our thing and yeah. people took care of us. Yeah. Other people did everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I was totally unaware. I did get chiggers, though. It was <laughs> awful. <laughs> Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Down.